You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Brr. It's wintertime, buckaroos. As my daddy still says, it's colder than a well driller's took us out there. Which means them doggies are shivering and you got death metal blasting in the dark of the early morn because you're on your way to go ice climbing. And though in this cowpoke's opinion, they should be staging an intervention rather than stoking the addiction. Black Diamond is and has always been at the forefront of innovation when it comes to pure ice and mixed climbing. I mean, just look at the names of Black Diamond's ice tools for crying out loud. The Reactor, the Fuel, the Viper. How the hell are you not going to feel like a boss wielding two Vipers in your hands? Of course, it helps to forget that Vipers generally would stay away from ice or go dormant in those temperatures. But try not to think about that while you're swinging your way up a glorious blue chunk of God's frozen creation. So once the natural euphoria of rewarming your hands begins to ebb, head over to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop and check out BD's ice tools, ice screws, apparel, and all the other accoutrement that goes with scraping up frozen rock and water. Because hell, aren't we really just here for the accoutrement? Happy holidays from the Enormacast and Yeti. I'm going to keep this short. No voices today. You sure about that, Chris? Yonder, I told you to take the day off. Sorry, sorry, I'm going. Where was I? Do you need a perfect small gift for friends and family that will actually get used? Then look no further than the Yeti Yonder water bottle. Tons of colors, a few sizes, and now Yeti has introduced two new cap options. Lighter tethered caps and a cap with a straw that Kathy and HR will just love. The Yonder water bottle is just a nice idea for a lower cost gift. Check them all out at yeti.com or your favorite shop. And of course, tell them Yonder sent you. Chris! What? You got any beers in this fridge or what? Just a minute, Yonder. All right, I gotta go. Enjoy the season. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. Sold that's, it out. that's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll say, you really, really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed playing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now, we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the Enormacast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kaluse. And it is December 21st, 2023, the winter solstice. It's late into the night here. 
10.30 or so Colorado time. I think last night was actually the longest night of the year because the solstice happened at 4.20 a.m. But what that means is we are going towards the light now. Towards the light. Oh, we're also doing a podcast here. On today's show, episode 277, we have the inimitable Kurt Smith. Kurt Smith is one of the most prolific first ascensionists of all time. He was a late stage stone master under the tutelage of John Backer, but then he turned into a sport climber, then he turned into a big wall free climber, and then he turned into multi-pitch bolting maniac down in Petro Chico. And now, even in his semi-retirement, he continues to develop roots. But this guy was there for a lot of historic stuff. And he wasn't just there watching. He made the history himself. Okay, we'll get to that in a sec. The shop over at enormacast.com is open again. It has not crashed and burned again yet. It's probably too late to get anything by Christmas. But, you know, maybe by the new year. Start the new year out right with some koozies over there at the shop. Go to normacast.com, click on shop. That's pretty much all there is. All the old t-shirts sold out in a couple days after I talked about them. You can also buy stickers over there. I do give stickers away for free, but a lot of people feel guilty about that because they are not free and postage is not free, especially to places like Canada and Europe. If you do feel like buying stickers, you can do that over there as well. I get my cut. State of Colorado gets their cut. The sticker people already got their cut. The post office gets their cut. It's like a little socialist country over there. If you guys pay for a few stickers, that means I can give away a few stickers and still break even. So yeah, check those things out. Otherwise, I'll see you at the Michigan Ice Fest. And I'll just hand you one. Okay, on to Kurt Smith. Yeah, man, Kurt Smith. I've been trying to get an interview down with Kurt Smith for a few years. He finally signaled on Instagram that he was ready, and I caught him in a hotel room somewhere. He's an independent sales rep. He was on the road. He reps for, I don't know, Salewa, Sterling, Evolve, Wild Country, Nemo, something called BioLite. Sales reps, especially independent sales reps, are becoming rarer, and uh, they really used to be part of the backbone of the climbing world. You know, before internet sales took over the world, you know, these guys were basically your conduit to new gear. And if you were a serious climber, you kind of had to get to know these guys, find out what was going on out there. So it's cool he's still doing it, making a living at that. But before that, he was like the climber's climber, man. He was everywhere. He was there to do the fourth ascent of Midnight Lightning. He was there to do the third ascent of the Bakarurian, right? He was an early free climber on El Cap attempting to free the mirror wall in 1994 and doing all but about 30 feet of it. Those stories are all here on this podcast. Why didn't he do the 30 feet? Well, guy has principles. Great historical podcast here, right in the Enormacast wheelhouse. Plenty of 80s lore. And I hope you dig it. But since Christmas hasn't passed yet, we got to do this thing one more time before we put it back in the closet till next year or maybe forever. Hey, Bobby, you going ice climbing this winter? Well, all right. Why don't we tell them how to keep their toes warm up on those icicles? Yeah, swing them tools, baby. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But in the gym, it's quite delightful. 
But you don't want to know So ice climbing you will go But the crummy boots you've chosen Will keep your poor toes frozen Pain builds character you know So ice climbing you will go With sportiva boots fit right You love going out in the storm Even when you grip too tight Up the icicle you'll be warm Under the boards the bros are spraying But indoors you'll not be staying Let Sportiva take care of your toes So ice climbing you can go Remember this winter, that frozen feet, losing your toenails, and bashing your front points around like a drunken Cossack dancer is not just, quote, part of ice climbing. Do it better, warmer, and with pleasure in exceptional ice climbing and mountain boots from Sportiva. All right, Bobby, let's take him to the moon. Two, three. Instead of loudly whining, Or with the barfies you start crying Be a boss up on the flows With Sportiva around your toes Cha-cha Hey Bobby, why don't we sled on over to Sportiva.com Or our favorite local shop And check out them boots The last time we saw each other Man, I don't know, it was later than Rifle because um. We hung out in <clears throat> Southern California, and okay. that would have been the <clears throat> mid to like, it, that would have been like 96 or 97. Okay, yeah, when I was doing like the slideshow tours and all that. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but I was thinking about it because I was still in a phase of climbing, and, and I think things were different because, you know, the lack of like social media or whatever. Meeting you and hanging out with you was like still this little bit of this like intimidating thing for me. You know, I'm like, oh, this is like Kurt Smith. Like, this is, we're just hanging out, you know, that, that sort of celebrity thing. Not, not that you put that up. It was more in my head. But yeah, I just kind of like, it was like sort of this weird big deal to run into, you know, someone I considered sort of a celebrity climber, and which I think you've always had like a little bit of a pushback against something like that in terms of like your, your celebrity. But, you know, you were a big deal. You were, you were Kurt Smith, the, the former stone master, the guy who helped usher in sport climbing and, um, and a badass. And I was, uh, and still consider myself, you know, this more of this super amateur. So I just kind of remember that feeling of like, okay, here we're hanging out. Let's all chill. But that is Kurt Smith. Can I ask him some of these questions I have, you know, or, or should we just like keep it chill kind of a thing? Um, but anyhow, I mean, I don't know if that you've ever felt that kind of, uh, weirdness when you meet sort of, or back then, like yeah. you were kind of in your celebrity. I'm a pretty shy person, even though I can get in front of 200 people and give a slideshow, you know, it never felt awkward to me, but I was never always super comfortable, but I would also never hold it against somebody if they were like, Oh my God, you know, like last night I'm in the gym, I'm leaving this demo. I'm super tired. I hadn't eaten all day. And this guy comes up and he's like, hey, my boss, you know, couldn't come and he really wanted to meet you. And he had a pair of the Generals, which is a shoe that I helped design for Evolve. And they named it after me. And he's like, can you sign this shoe for me? And like the owner of the gym is like, oh my God. Fan-. And everybody's like fanboying and a bunch of the employees are like, 
who is this guy? Why, why are you signing this <laughs> dude's shoe? And the owner of the gym's like, oh my God, you don't know who the general is. And, and so it's always funny when that happens and I feel honored nowadays, you know, and um, it's just funny. Like I never, I never thought of myself. I still don't think of myself that way. And uh, when people approach me like that, it's, it's cool. And I'm never like mean to anybody and it's just neat, you know? I was the same way or like when I went to Joshua Tree in 82 and we'll talk about this. I don't know if we're started yet. Yeah, we're in. We're um, in. You know, when I grew up in Tahoe, I distinctly remember when Backer was on the cover outside in 83, maybe. And then there was a big article about him in the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle. And I remember I was w- working in a gas station in 83 and... um the whole article was about him and soloing, but it was really also about Midnight Lightning. And that was the first time that I really like had it in my mind that I was going to do that fucking Boulder problem. And that next year I saved up my money and, and went to the, went to J tree in 84 with Ken Ariza, who'd never been. And Dave Hatchett, who we just, he just started climbing. We just started getting him into rock climbing and we, you know, I took those guys to J tree and then we all ended up in the Valley. And I remember walking, you know, waking up in the morning, first day in the Valley. And it was my first year, first trip, but my first full season in the Valley. I remember waking up me and Dave, we get coffee and then we go bouldering. Cause that was our routine. We'd boulder every morning. And I remember walking up to the lightning, never tried it, obsessed about it over these articles about backer had dreams of this problem. And I like try it and I fall off the first hold and try it and fall off the second hold. And I remember like that day, like, okay, I'm going to fucking do this thing. It might take me six months. It might take me six years. And so every morning I was in the Valley from like April till June. And then we went to the meadow. So every morning I would work, do my circuit, finish with the lightning, make a little progress. Spent the whole summer in Tuolumne, which was... 1984 is like my breakout year. Go back to the Valley in like probably October and um, Skip Guerin rolls into town and he's working on it and I'm working on it and I'm really strong now and I'm super skinny and we're both working on it together and like I'm getting to the bolt hold and I'm matching on it and then eventually I'm getting to the bolt hold and matching and slapping the lip and we're both gunning for the third ascent, right? Because the the lightning was arguably the hardest problem in the world at the time. And only backer could do it because Cal kind of quit climbing for a while, you know, and every climber of the day would, would fail on that thing. And Who I else has done it? Uh, Cal, Cal did it first. Oh, okay. All okay. Oh, right. That's right. Backwards. Yeah. Oh, okay. The backer cool. did yeah. it yeah, right, right after him. All right. Cool. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember. Um the sequence yeah and then those for guys a while were sort of battling for the first ascent of it too yeah. totally and so yeah. nobody had done the third right? right that was like and john would just every day he would run laps on it and i remember skip and i were working on it together and separately and then one day he did it boom third ascent big deal and i was slapping the lip and i was really close and so i remember that like i think it was like the next day i'm like i'm, I'm gonna fucking do this thing and the next day I roll up, I, I warm up. I got two friends of mine who were really good spotters and uh, the whole campground was watching. It was really kind of weird to me. 
because this was like a competition, right? There was literally like a hundred people watching. I'm like, oh my God, this is weird. <laughs> but then I sent the thing and was just like, oh my God, right? I'm on top just going, what just happened? And then I, I did it again just to make sure it wasn't like this fluke. And then I remember Tracy and Troy, who were my friends and, and spotters, these two really big ex-college football players who would just literally just catch me set me down right because i weighed like 120 <laughs> pounds at the time and then i remember i wasn't even old enough to drink i was 20 but we went to the deli and just got shit faced and just by noon i was just totally wasted celebrating <laughs> um, so that capped off 84 which is arguably my most memorable year 84 86 88 um it's funny every even numbers 90 92, 94, 96. Those are just like really magical years for me. Dude, that's a lot of good years. Yeah. I mean, come on, dog. That's like, <laughs> I mean, if you can count that many like breakout years, you're, you're doing pretty good. But I mean, what that speaks to is this evolution, which previously when we were talking about doing this podcast, I keep bringing up that word. And, um, but that just bolsters my idea about this evolution because I, you know, some of those years, I'm like, oh, that's when he was here. And that's when he was here. And it wasn't all in the valley, which is, I think, I think like the key element to, uh, to part of who you are as a climber is that, um, instead of just basking in the glory of your days there in the, in the, the valley for too long, which a lot of people do, in my opinion, um, you sort of moved on, but let, let me, let me tease out a few things in that awesome story. First of all, you, Anybody wants to take a look at this, uh, you know, you on your Instagram account, you posted a picture of this recently of you on the Midnight Lightning. And it's just like, it's, it's a, I mean, it's just a snapshot of an era in, in like a hundred different ways. What you're wearing, no pads, you know, um, you know, you're, I made a little comment about your giant chalk bag. Totally. <laughs> Although maybe it's just because you were so small that it looked totally. really big. <laughs> so what's interesting yeah. about that photo is, is, um, that's the actual send. Nice. That's the, that's the, the, the moment and the, and the attempt that was the send and this German guy who I don't even remember his name, he sent me the pictures later in the mail. Oh, wow. And um, and so it's really, it was definitely special. I didn't even realize it at the time. You know, when he sent me the picture, I was like, oh, this is super cool. But having that now in my, you know, in my memory bank and in my digital world is really neat, you know, because it's a moment that I thought would never happen. And it was a moment that I had obsessed over in 83 and in the winter of 84, when I saw these articles about John mm -hmm. and that Boulder problem. Mm -hmm. And I was a total nobody then nobody really knew who I didn't even know who I was. And I just remember well, like, that's being an interesting so, statement. <laughs> I was so focused. And I think this has always been my superpower is, is just, I put my mind to something and, and really nothing's going to get in my way, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to build the paradigm because, you know, if those two guys were the only two people who had done it, it's almost like, it's almost like you weren't even, you weren't even supposed to be touching it. You know, a person like you that just came out of nowhere and like, you know, people were probably waiting for the, for the Jerry Moffats to show up to totally. do it. And like, I don't know, you don't, you well, go um, off into the forest and do these other little things. You don't do this thing. And so, I mean, even the audacity and it's, it's hard to kind of, again, put frame that now because of, of, you know, the midnight lightning is, is sort of entry level, 
you know, hard bouldering now, but, but for you to get up every morning and go touch that thing was almost like sacrilegious in a way. But also I want to like, I mean, Skip Guerin, like that's a dude who's, who's sort of lost to climbing history and, and, you know, he's kind of, I find him to be like that jazz musician that no, nobody knows about except for other jazz players, but will come up and in their list of the greats and you'll be like, who's, who's that guy, you know? And, uh, even I think Jeff Aki once said to me that he was like the most naturally talented climber he had ever, had ever seen, like right next to like, in his mind, like chip chase was another one that he said was was like just one of the best. And it's interesting that he showed up and did the, did the third and then probably like slunk off back into obscurity, you know? Totally. Anyhow, but yeah, I, that's a that's again a great story to to kind of frame the beginning. The other thing that's I think cool, but or like for me personally about that story is that I've always referenced my interest in climbing coming from some article that I read about John Backer um, in Illinois in the suburbs of Chicago, and I've always said I don't know it was like on Backpacker or outside or something like that, um, which I thought maybe was apocryphal, like that I had not actually done that because you you know you make up these myths in your own past that become memories um but anyway you just filled in exactly what i was talking about because i had a subscription to outside magazine yeah he was um, on the cover and, yeah and uh you know and i was like john bakar that guy right. this guy john bakar seems really interesting to me um and that actually led to me being interested in climbing even though i was in the suburbs of illinois nowhere near any climbing had never seen it uh, but that was probably like literally the striking of the match um that had led led me here so it's cool that you you put a date on it and also made made my story actually maybe true <laughs> it's true <supposed> yeah <laughs> yeah he was free soloing crack a go-go it was on the cover uh-huh right and uh you know and it's interesting like you know in the world of today you know all of your influences are derived from the phone and the internet and for me it was books and going to the library and, you know, and, and stealing books from the library because sometimes you couldn't check them out or whatever. And so it was Yosemite Climber, right? And if you had Yosemite Climber, which I did, and, and Rick Lovelace, who I grew up with in Lake Tahoe and taught me and Tommy Thompson how to rock climb, you know, he had Yosemite Climber. And so that was our Bible. You know, we would get home from school, go over to Rick's house, smoke a bunch of pot and just go through the book and look at the pictures and just be like, and we're like five, seven Gumbies, right? We just learned how to climb. It's 1980. And we're just like, Oh my God, you know, Oh my God. And you'd look at all these pictures and be like, Oh, I'll never climb that. And I'll never climb that. And I'll never climb that. And it's so cool to eventually you go to, you know, you go to Joshua tree or you go to Valley and a few years later, and you're actually like climbing these things. And so that's the Bible for me. Every, everybody should have that copy, whether it's digital or whatever, but that book should go back into print. They probably sell like 40 million copies. It's, it's fascinating because part of the lore of this podcast is my interest in the book Climb, uh, the Bob Godfrey book about Colorado. And I feel like those, you know, if you're a California climber, the Yosemite climber was, was that. And, um, and if you're a, if you're a Colorado climber of the same era, then you pick up the, the book Climb and uh, do the same thing, you know, and I'm going to climb that and I want to climb that. And this one is, and actually people did that. Like they, they had competitions to do all the routes in that book. 
to the point of like these really super obscure ones. But um, well, let me ask you this about your just I don't want to dwell too much on on the early, early days, but um, you said by 1980 you were you were a rock climber. Um, but also I want to mention, you know, you, you talked about in the very beginning of being sort of shy, which is fascinating to me because in a lot of ways um, your sort of brashness is is part of that, at least that early part of your climbing. And so what were you like as a kid? Uh, that we talk about how much more sort of difficult or I don't know if it's special or it was to find rock climbing, you know, in, in a time like 1980, you know, without climbing gyms, without it sprayed all over the media. Um, so how did you find climbing and what kind of kid were you that, that made you attracted to what was a very serious kind of counterculture at that point versus, um, you know, the normal stuff off to, off to school and yeah girls and sports and things like that super good question you know so um I, you know i was born in detroit we lived in ohio brief stop in indiana and then my parents my dad got a job in lake tahoe and we moved to tahoe i think it's 76 so i was like 12 and um Right down the road, you know, I was in junior high, right down the road, I met Rick Lovelace in school and he lived right down the road from me. And uh, he was a Boy Scout and, and we started backpacking. That was that was my entry to the outdoors, you know, living in Lake Tahoe, Incline Village. You know, you could basically walk out your door and go backpacking or get, we would get our parents drive us up to Mount Rose Highway and just drop us off on Friday and pick us up on Sunday. and you know, I had parents that were pretty, pretty cool at just letting us run around in the woods, you know, and this wasn't hiking on trails. We just load up super heavy packs and just go bushwhacking and hiking. And so it really started with backpacking and, and, and skiing. My dad taught me how to ski. And, uh, and then it was winter backpacking. We would just go trudge through the snow in the winter. And then Rick, you know, he had some hexes and a rope and a swami belt and Yosemite climber. And I was like, oh, that looks really cool. And so one day he took me and I think Tommy to Ballbuster Rock. And I think we set up uh, whatever standard 5'9 top rope was there, which was seemed impossible at the time. And I remember, you know, him putting the swami on and, and tying me in and, and putting me on belay and he's like all right there you go and, and like somehow I, I i don't even know if i got up the route but i remember just thrashing on this thing but it was like a needle to the vein right it was just like instant high instant exhilaration instant fear and that was it it was just like every moment after that day was just spent like obsessing over the books and and then figuring out how, how we'd go try and go climbing every day and uh, so that was 79 and then 80 or we're both, we both turned 16 and I get my driver's license in March and for spring break, I'm like, Hey, me and Rick want to go to the Valley. We're 16. Right. My parents are like, uh, Oh, okay. <laughs> and my parents are like, we're cool with this rock climbing thing. We just want you to take a couple of lessons so that we're comfortable with the fact that maybe, you know what you're doing and you're not going to die. Okay, awesome. So we, me and Rick and this other kid somehow get our car to the valley, whole epic trying to drive down there. I take a, a 
two-day course with the Yosemite Mountaineering School. And Don Reed was my teacher who was the guidebook author at the time. And also somebody was like, I would read about through his books. And I was, was about really to ask cool. you like who, who your guide was because at that time it would have been somebody. I don't totally. Care. I mean, yeah. You know, cause that was like, yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was just star studded, so to speak, but that's cool. So anyway, sorry it, to interrupt, but yeah. No, it's totally good. And this is, <laughs> this is very, piv- I feel like this is a very pivotal week because nice. There was probably like four of us in the class and he, you know, he sets up the standard five fives and five sixes over at Swan's lab. And I'm just like firing everything that he sets up, you know, and, and at the end of the first day, class is over, everybody disperses and Don's like, Hey, once you stick around, I want to show you some boulder problems right there around Swan's lab. And he spent the afternoon of the two days after he was done working just like showing me some boulder problems. And it was really like another little light bulb moment where things started to click. And it really made a big impression on me. And clearly I made an impression on him because otherwise he could have been, in, you know, could have gone home or could have gone to the bar, could have done his own thing. But he like literally took time out of his day after the class to, to climb with me. And then later that week, Rick and I do our first multi-pitch together. We do um, the Braille book. And I'd, I'd never led before, right? So we're like learning how to lead on this multi-pitch 5.8 or 5.9. I don't even remember how hard it was on uh, Upper Cathedral. And I remember it was totally exhilarating and totally terrifying. I, I, was total, I'm, I was afraid of heights, believe it or not. So it was really hard to like figure out how to overcome that. But we do this route, get down. And again, it was just like, oh my God, that was amazing and so scary. And then later that week, a couple of friends that Rick had met in Camp 4 were going to go do the Chouinard Herbert on Sentinel, Jeez. which is like 5.11 or something, right? A1. <laughs> I don't even know. And Rick's like, oh, we should go do that. I'm like, uh, okay. I'm like totally terrified and didn't want to say no. And so we get up at like, you know, in dark, we pack these huge packs and we like do the approach up to the base of the Sentinel. And our friends are like way up on the wall. And I'm just like, oh my God, there's no way in hell, right? And so Rick leads the first pitch and he's like, hey, you know, when you uh, when I lead this pitch, I'll fix the rope. You clip the senders on, put the pack on and descend the rope, come to the belay. I'm like, oh, sounds great. So he leads, you know, I take him off the lay. He's like, okay, come on up. So I clip the ascenders on. I jug the line, clean the gear. It's like, you know, it's like slab before you get onto the wall. I get to the belay and he's like, what the hell, man? He's like yelling at me. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, dude, you're supposed to clip into the Jumars. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you didn't tell me that. You didn't show me how to do that. It wasn't in the Royal Robins learn how to climb book. And I'll never forget this. He like clips so me you just in. just basically like hand over handed up the yeah, rope. Yeah, I just ascended the rope. Just, yeah. Right. It was crazy. <laughs> and I remember, like, I look up, those guys way up there. I look down, look up. Um, and we're, like, totally stoned, right? I'm like, dude, I got no business being on this thing. We have got to bail. We're going to die, for sure. He's like, yeah, you're right. This was a bad idea. And then we had to do this, like, gnarly descent back to the base. And so it was really, again, another pivotal moment where I was like, man, 
we got to learn what the hell we're doing really quick or we're going to die. And that's how it used to be back then. You either figured it out or you quit climbing or you died. And uh, in the 80s, we had a, a, a saying that we used to say every day when we would go climbing. And uh, it was have fun or you get hurt real bad. And that was like our <laughs> mantra. <laughs> you know, I have a question that may actually uh, fit into into this whole thing. Um, where did the general come from? Where did that uh, Where did that nickname come from? Yeah. So um, originally, I was the kid. Um, right. My first trip straight out of high school was to Joshua Tree in '82. I spent the whole winter. And that's uh, that was really the year that just opened the door. I went down there, you know, leading five nines and five tens, and I left flashing five elevens and top roping and leading five twelves. It was and that was year I met the Stonemasters. So I met John and Lynn and Largo and Yabo and the Leklinskis and Feidelman and everybody, right? And they totally took me under their wing, and, and that winter really definitely changed my life. And so they called me the kid because a baby face, super young, highly motivated. Which well, is- it's also kind of late in the era. So these guys were, weren't that young at that point. They were still yeah. in like their yeah. late twenties. Right. Late probably, 20s. Probably, you know, yeah. but, um, and then, you know, for me, it was like, oh my God, I'm hanging out with all the people I read about in Yosemite climber. Right. And so it was really amazing. And every You're like, weekend, act cool, they, be cool. I'll try act cool. Just yeah, they were just cool. like, okay, we're gonna go bouldering today. I'm like, okay. And then they're like, go do this, or okay, we're gonna right. set up a rope on the beaver. And I'm like, okay. I would just do whatever they did, right? And mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, I would just flash it right away, or you know, really work hard at it. And so they called me the kid. And then yeah, and then I show up in the valley in '84 with Ken and Dave and our whole little crew of like twenty young twenty year old punks right that are just so motivated every day to just climb boulder repeat put up routes which a lot of people weren't doing you know uh i drove my first bolt in j tree in 82 got my first first ascent and it was i was hooked it was like oh i just want to do first ascent every day and a bunch of the yosar guys i think used to kind of you know they would kind of laugh at us and they would rib us and they would tease us and they would dog us and I always thought it was kind of mean, but it, you know, as I look back, it was also kind of like they would drop nuggets of wisdom, like because they wanted us to succeed and not get messed up, but at the same time, give us a lot of shit because we're so young and we're just punks. And and so I think some of the Yosar guys dubbed me the general, you know, because I was I always had a plan. Every morning, I'd wake up and I'd be like, "Oh, I had spied this new route I want to do," or "Hey, let's go repeat this route," or "Hey, let's go bouldering." and you know, we'd sit around and, and drink coffee and eat breakfast and smoke some weed. And I feel like nobody else could make a decision. So I would always just be like, hey, let's go do this or let's go do that. I think that's kind of how, how I got dubbed that name. Right on. Yeah, see, that, that's, that's, uh, th- that actually really is enlightening about the scene there. I was kind of curious then about your relationship with, uh, with Backer. And like you said, it started out as... as you know, I guess Fanboy. when I was explaining, yeah, when I was explaining our relationship, I was a little bit, you know, it was a little bit distant on my part. Um, yeah, it starts out as fanboy, but then, you know, he becomes a mentor, he becomes a friend. So tell me a little bit about that, because obviously it was super um, also pivotal in your life as to who you became as a climber. 
Totally. Um, but also, you know, then finally kind of going against a lot of the stuff that he probably taught. Yeah. About. You know, meeting him in 82, along with the Leklinskis and Yabo, that whole Stonemaster crew, 100% changed my life. Had I not gone to Joshua Tree or not met them, had they not brought me into their fold, because they, you know, you could either be in the inside of the fence or the outside of the fence, for sure changed my whole life. And, you know, and it wasn't until 84 when I, so I did the third ascent of Backer Yuri in that year. So 84 was big, right? Like I, as soon as I roll into the valley, I onsighted my first 12A, which is Crimson Cringe. I did the West Face of El Cap all free with this Australian climber. I never thought I'd climb El Cap. I was terrified of that piece of rock. I was afraid of heights. When I went to the valley in 80, I was like, oh, I'm never going to climb that thing. You know, just no way. And then um, put up a bunch of routes that spring. Then I go to Tuolumne and, and just start putting up routes and repeating stuff. But it was really, I think, I don't think John paid a whole lot of attention to me until I repeated his route back a year in. And uh, he was watching from the highway with binoculars when Ed Barry and I did that thing. And uh, we almost died. I almost died. Ed took a 80-foot fall. He was 40 feet straight above me. It was before they moved the bolts. And a knob broke, and he fell, hit my shoulder, bounced. John said it was like two bowling balls crashing in space. Fell another 40 feet. I caught him somehow. And uh, he came up to the belay as white as white can be, totally freaked out. He's like, oh man, I'm not going back. And he'd already tried the route a couple of times the year before. He's like, I'm not going back up there, man. I'm not going back up there. And I was so terrified after leading the first pitch that I was like, well, I'll give it a shot because I don't ever want to come back here again. <laughs> and it like snapped Ed out of his funk. He's like, no, I'm going again. I'm like, go. Jesus. And he like fired the pitch. And then I, I broke a hold on the third pitch, but managed to stick it. We summoned it. We did the route. And I think when John saw that, it, it, I, he told me later, it was like he had a, a lot of respect for me at that point. He was like, man, that was amazing. I thought you guys were dead. And then you finished my route <laughs> for the third ascent. Steve Schneider was at the base for moral support. He saw the whole thing. And so by, the, by that summer, I, you know, I was in. John kind of brought me into the fold and he'd be like, Hey kid, let's go bowler in today. Or Hey kid, let's go to the East side. And, you know, I remember Moffat was in town one week and me and him and Moffat just spent a whole week in his forerunner driving all over bouldering and doing routes. And so that was the year that he, I was in, I was like his friend, his climbing partner. And uh, yeah, we just did a lot of climbing together over the years. And, you know, he, he taught me a lot about music and, he was so much more than about rock climbing. You get in the car with him and it wasn't about rock climbing. It was about, oh, he just heard about this band called Public Enemy and he was super into jazz and early rap. And and so every time I was with John, I would just, my whole mind would just get expanded with the things that he was into. And so, yeah, we we became really good friends and, and a mentor and, and somebody that I was always still in awe of. You know, we would go do routes together, first ascents together. And so, yeah, he's super special person in my life, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and I was fully on board with the traditional way of climbing. And when the, when the hang doggers started coming to the Valley and looking for the shortcuts to, 
to send the routes in an easier fashion with less effort and what we considered cheating, which is today just what everybody calls sport climbing, you know, is definitely, you know, wanting to still uh, carry that torch of how I thought rock climbing should be. Start at the bottom, go to the top, right? And uh, and then eventually, I you know, I realized that, you know, there's definitely other ways to do it. And, you know, so I became into bolting more routes, usually still from the ground up because I still like that aspect. Um, but I don't think John ever held it against me. I think he did with a lot of other people. But I feel like we were always pretty honest with each other. And, you know, when I became a professional climber and was doing comps and bolting routes and rifle, you know, I'd always be like, yeah, John, you taught me so much. And I take so much of what you taught me and I still apply it, you know, when I'm bolting. Mm-hmm. I never, I don't think I really ever rappled much in rifle because it was so hard to get to the top. It was right. just way easier for me to take what I learned climbing El Cap as an aid climber and apply that to a ground up method of installing bolts. Mm-hmm. And that's how I bolted the entire Petrero Chico, Clear Creek, and still do to this day. So, so when you were, uh, again like in the thick of it right it, as far as like the the traditional thing totally. and then you said these you know the the cheaters showed up as as your attitude was at the time um i mean did you get down and dirty with the with the wars as far as chopping things and any of that like where it got kind because it got kind of ugly there for oh, a totally. bit. um were, were you like i'm gonna be a standard bearer in that sense um i mean do you have any incidents that you were like maybe now look back on like, God, I was kind of being a shithead or whatever. You know, I I would, I never chopped her out, but I'd be pretty vocal about my opinion when Mm -hmm. Skinner and Piana and Smoot and all those guys would come to the Valley. And our whole thing was, you want to do that at your home crag, your new crags, wherever, totally fine. Right, but you come to the valley, you go to Tuolumne, you go to Jay Tree. It's really disrespectful. That was our opinion. And it's like, if you're not good enough to climb these routes the way everybody else has climbed them, then you can't really be so welcome here, right? Because, and I know this t- in today's era, they're like, oh, you know not inclusive or whatever but it was like look man this was how rock climbing began and it was all about the adventure right and the and the the camaraderie and the partnership and the mystery this is what people don't today's generation love them to death and i sell them a lot of climbing shoes and climbing gear but they will never or most of them will never know the mystery of what it's like to stand at the base of a route that's never been climbed and go from the bottom to the top without any shortcuts. And and it's cool when we're in this new world, but I feel super lucky that I got to live that life. And then I take everything that I learned and applied it to the modern era. And I think it's really hard now for somebody to start in the modern era and still capture that sense of adventure. And there's people who still can do that, but the shortcut is always available to you and it was never available and we didn't want it and we didn't think we needed it. 
And for me personally, it was never about the number. It was about the line and my partner and the adventure and the things that we shared in that moment, that day, that week, whatever we're doing. That was way more valuable than, oh my God, I just, you know, put up another 13A or just onside of this or it was just a very, very deep in those connections. And, the, and for me, it's all about adventure. And when it comes to first ascents, it's not like I look at the cliff and go, man, I can't wait to do this 13A. For me, it's like, man, I can't wait to do that really cherry looking line that might end up being 510. And I would have just as much joy putting up that route as putting up a 514. Every time, you know, people are like, oh man, we got to go. We got to add all these bolts to all these routes because you guys all messed it up back then because your egos were so big and you put up all these routes and you ran it out on purpose. It's like, no, it's not how it played out. You know, you ran it out because you couldn't find a stance or you could only afford five bolts in your bag that day and it needed seven. Nine times out of 10, you just couldn't stop to tap in that bolt. So you just kept going. And that's that whole mantra of have fun or get hurt real bad. (laughs) And if Um, you want to do that route, you got to step up your game if you want to repeat the old stuff. And I I still feel really adamant that there's plenty of sanitized climbing out there for people. And if they're not willing to do the back of your in or my route burning down the house on Fairview Dome, uh, you know, uh, Electric Africa on Peewiak, it's like the most popular top rope in Tuolumne. It has like a permanent top rope on it. Man, I, I hung my ass out to dry putting that thing up, ground up, hanging on hooks and tiny little things to put four bolts in a hundred feet of rock. When you um, started to kind of, I don't know, transition or, uh, I mean, was there like a dark night of your soul in terms of like feeling it? Or was it just, I mean, I put it this way. Like I talked to, to Scotty Franklin and I'm sure he was, was a, I mean, he was definitely a uh, era wise. He was a compatriot of yours. Um, Also, Coming from the gunks, maybe yep. not quite as staunchly, although close. No, they know. were totally traddies yeah, yeah. back then. And, you know, he sort of at least characterized it to me as like, you know, one day he just realized this was dumb and I and we're and I'm not gonna do this anymore. Or maybe Jerry Moffat or someone, I can't remember the exact story, but it, it wasn't such a leap for him, but I don't think he was quite as in it as you were. Um I mean you know, even, and again, we got to like frame this. There's a lot of people that understand this. A lot of people don't is that hanging on the rope in a climb to work on the moves was hang dogging as it were, was like total cheating, totally cheating. So at some point you did that. Maybe that was the first thing you did was do a little hang dogging on something that was giving you fits. Um, was there like a sort of transition for you that was conscious or did it just sort of happen tell me tell me a little bit about that because it was like that that also was like can could lose you friends or whatever it happens to be and it you know it sounds like backer like came around or eventually or or just said it's okay but um there was like you said plenty of other people he didn't find it okay for yeah you know, I feel for me, it was... Or did you um, do it somewhere else? Did you do it outside yeah, it was, of Yeah, so I'd moved to Colorado at that point, right. blown out my knee, recovered from knee surgery. 
and it was it was really at that point where I, I just wanted to see how far I could take my my skill and my vision and my energy. And so it was it wasn't even a conscious thing. It just it just happened. It started in shelf row when I was climbing in a full length orthotic knee brace. Because I thought I'd never climb again after my knee was destroyed. I was actually I was actually it was 88. I was actually going to Snowbird. It was like two weeks before the very first snowboard comp I'd been training and training meaning I've been climbing all over uh, Independence Pass and, and just because I was going to go do a comp. I didn't even know what a comp was, but I heard about the snowboard thing, got invited, and then I destroyed my knee sitting in a hospital bed going, well, that's it. I'm never going to go rock climbing again. And then I fought through physical therapy and had this break. I climbed in a knee brace for like two years. Wait, how'd you well, break? How'd you blow your knee up though? Skateboarding. Oh, okay. It's just a really... <laughs> freak horrible accident right. where I destroyed everything in my left mm. knee. And so it was really at that point that I was like, I love climbing. I'll never quit climbing. And so it was just really easy to just start changing my game so that I could continue to do what I loved. You know, and then I was, you know, I was living in Boulder. I just met Mike Pont. We became super good friends. We we're putting routes up together. And I was still bolting from the ground up and using, you know, eight climbing techniques and, and hanging on hooks. And then if it was easy to get to the top of a cliff, like, you know, anarchy wall or certain other walls. Yeah. We just wrapped down a bolt, but it, yeah, it was just really at that point I was like, okay, I, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm ready for the next phase of, of what I can do. Take what I see when I look at a piece of blank rock and how I'm going to turn that into something that I want to climb. And then I started doing comps and uh, I got really good at comp climbing. And Mike and I built the first gym in Denver, Paradise Rock Gym. And we worked in a gym and we, you know, we were part of the earliest days of route setting and plastic holds and going to comps. And, and it just allowed me to just continue to climb and, and expand my horizons. And the thing that I always respected about John and the things that we talked about years later was like, he personally would never do it because he wanted climbing to still be pure and special in his mind. And that's why I, I to this day, I, even though he's passed, I still had so much respect because had he adopted that stuff in 88 and 89 and 90, he would have crushed everybody. Right. And if he wanted to become a, a comp climber and go to Snowbird, he would have crushed all those people because he was mentally the strongest on site climber on the planet. His mental game, and you have to be that to be a good comp climber. And if he wanted to go put up 514s, I mean, he would have, he would have been the first. And so um, that's why I still have so much respect for him because he felt that his, experience was worth more than taking the shortcut. And for me, I was at some point I was just like sitting in a hospital bed going, man, I just want to keep climbing. And this was a, a natural transition. And he respected me for it. He saw me win snowbird four years later in 92. I won that comp. That was the year he got in that fist fight with Chapman. And he was there and he, and he was like, man, I was rooting for you the whole way. And afterwards, I'm like crying and I'm like, man, you know, I wouldn't even fucking be here if it wasn't for you, John, you know, and he was really psyched about that. 
Yeah, that's a special story because he's he's definitely like put in this place where he was like, you know, no way and unforgiving about those things. So it's nice to hear that he was much more of a human than that. <clears throat> but uh, the the one interesting thing that I got to kind of note is that I started climbing pretty much in your, or just before, but, you know, the first few years were in your rifle era. You know, you, you came into a, to Colorado where there was also still this like, you know, anti-sport climbing animosity and boulder and things like that. And you, you weren't the first person there, but you definitely put rifle on the map or was one of the group that put it on the map as this hard sport climbing area. So it's interesting that you, I mean, maybe you dabbled in it at first, but then it was like, you put the hammer down, you know, you got your mullet, um, you shave the sides of your head. Uh, I actually have a memory. I went to rifle in like 91 ish. Yeah. Um, I think that's where I, I remember would, seeing you there. Yeah. Were you a truck driver back then? Uh, no, you were oh. thinking of Knuth. Doug. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like to say I get confused with Chris Knuth all the time until people see me climb. And then they're like, oh, that's not Chris because <laughs> that got crushed back in the day. But no, I, I just, you, you would not have known who I was. I had actually stopped there on the way back from aid climbing in the Fisher Towers because some friends were there. How they even knew about Rifle at that point, who knows? But I stopped 91 by. 91 was early. Yeah. I went in the Ruckman too. Cave. Yeah. yeah. I went in the Ruckman Cave and it might have been 92, 93. It was in that era, but... um. And I remember joking with them because I went in the Ruckman Cave and there was all these people hanging on the bolts. And I made, I made some comment like, oh, I thought I would feel out of place as an aid climber, but this looks really similar. And, uh, and you, like, you rocked in and like, threw your rope down and warmed up on Pinchfest or something in there and then like, rocked out. And I just have this distinct memory because it was, it was like high mullet era so um yeah so tell me a little bit about that of like yeah finding rifle and i mean and going you know full on into um i'm a sport climber eat it or die kind of thing totally. because that was a lot of those guys in there you know sam and all those guys were you know they were brash they they didn't take shit from anybody the the sport climbing thing they just kind of pushed it through um totally. so to speak in colorado yeah, it was maybe really they, cool. because of where it was, you know, it was off the map. It was not Boulder Canyon or somewhere like that, which is where the battles were were happening. Totally. Yeah, it was really neat. You know, I was I was focused on Clear Creek. Uh, I moved mm -hmm. to Boulder. I got married my first marriage and moved to Boulder from Breck. You know, I just recovered from knee surgery, kind of feeling good about climate again. Moved to Boulder. Met Mike Pont. We both worked in a restaurant. I waited tables. He worked in the kitchen. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. We meet. Oh, you rock climb? Oh, I rock climb. Cool. I've been working on this canyon called Clear Creek. Let's go the next day. And so he'd never, I don't think he'd ever put up a route in his life up until he met me. And so we started along with a couple other friends. We we're, I was focused on Clear Creek. And then um, I don't know how we heard about it, but the Ruckman brothers had gone to rifle and came back. Maybe we met him at the gym or maybe we met him at the restaurant. I don't even know. But they're like, oh, yeah, you got, you got to come up next weekend. It's this place called Rifle. And, you know, this is before the internet. So you get out a map and then you're like, oh, Rifle, drive up I-70. And so it was me and Mike and I think Pete Zoller and Phil Benningfield. And we meet the Ruckman brothers up there. And I remember driving into that canyon. You know, you see the fish hatch. You kind of. 
we're like, where the fuck is this place? You know, and you round the bend and you see the um, the Vatican, you see the beginning of the canyon. You're like, your eyes get like this big. And then you drive up the road. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And, you know, we stop and we kind of run into all these different cliffs. And then we meet the Ruckman brothers up at the Ruckman cave at the top of the canyon. And the Ruckmans, which is a name that if you climb in Colorado, Utah, you've seen, but again, like kind of not ever super famous climbers, but, but again, those jazz musicians, those guys that, that were everywhere, were inspirations, were super exploratory, finding things all over the place. And, and Brett gen- generally is associated with Boulder even, and, and Stewart is associated with Salt Lake, even though Brett also uh, grew up there. But, but yeah, just uh, the climbers, climbers, you know, out there doing the things and, and, pushing it but it's also funny because i always laugh that that they developed the ruckman cave first and like just you know cruised past like i know and all these things (laughs) yeah so i I don't even think we i don't even think we climbed their Mm -hmm. routes i feel like for me i just wanted to drill right i was Mm -hmm. like i was armed to the teeth and so we drove back down and we picked out the wasteland because it was literally like the shortest walk from the car. We're kind of like back and forth to the car, getting our gear together. And I see this guy walking up the road. This is a great story. This really tall guy walking up the road with the fishing pole. I don't think anything of it. I'm just in the back of my van, getting my drill and all my gear. And he gets closer and closer. And I'm like, yeah, that guy looks familiar. And then pretty soon I'm like, that's fucking Leighton Core. I'm like, what the hell are you doing here? He's like, what the hell are you guys doing here? And this is like a guy, another guy that I was like idolized, right? I'd met him once or twice, probably been to one of his slideshows at Neptune. He's like, oh yeah, I knew you guys would find this place eventually. He's like, yeah, I did a route here down by the entrance, like, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago or something. And he wasn't really climbing anymore. I was like, oh my God, this is our first time here. You should come over and and hang out. I'm going to go ground up both this route. He's like, oh, that sounds interesting. So he sat there and watched me drill vision thing. Nice. That's my first route in rifle. (laughs) And I'm like hanging on a hook. I climb up and I set a hook and I hang on it and the hook doesn't blow. And I pull up the drill and drill the bolt and then climb some more. And maybe I like wedge a cam in. It was a, I think I had a friend, I get the friend in, hang on. He's like, oh, this is fascinating. You know, he's like, you're taking aid climbing skills and applying it to this. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd done a bunch of El Cap routes in the eighties and it just perfectly armed me with all of the skills to, to really bolt anything from the ground up. Cause I still love the adventure, you know, even though it is super easy for some cliffs to go to the top and I'll do it, you know, when I'm at the new or whatever, but if I have a shot at starting at the bottom, whether it's a five eight slab and I'm stancing with a power drill or hanging on hooks, I still love the whole process. To me, it's about the process and the adventure and whatever numbers attached to the route later is just like icing on the cake. And so it was really neat for me, my first route to have that guy who I idolize sit there for like half an hour watching us do our thing. It was truly like couldn't have been scripted better in Hollywood. And then he left. He's like, have fun. You know, and I bolt vision thing and Mike bolts 
the beast and Pete bolts, whatever's next to the beast, him and Phil. And those are like the first three routes we put bolts in that weekend. That's ridiculous. And every weekend we were back, you know, Mike and I were working, right. working at paradise rock gym at that point. And every weekend we'd be up in rifle. And for the first year, year and a half, we couldn't get anybody to come up. Everybody in Boulder thought we were either crazy or full of shit or crazy and full of shit. And why would you drive four hours? And so for the first year, year and a half, we had the whole place to ourselves. We'd pick the cherriest line every weekend and just do our magic. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. And then I think like that era probably got you into access because of like there was an eventual um you know locals going what exactly is going on here in our in our little park so talk a little bit about that because it it seems like that might have been your entry that ended up i mean you were you were on the access fund board at, at one point and and running access um what was it kick access uh kick and access events and things like these precursors to like how they operate um just standard operation now for the access fund um, so tell me a little bit about that, about interfacing with the locals and having to kind of explain yourselves. Totally. I don't feel like there was rangers in the park back then. I don't really recall. I can't imagine. There hardly are now. Yeah, I don't really ever recall like people being like, oh, you can't do that or you can't be here. I remember somebody saying, hey, just don't climb in the ice caves because you know, that place is kind of special. And we're like, that's cool. We'll, we'll stay away from that, you know, and don't climb by the fish hatchery. We're like, cool. But I remember after the end of the first year, you know, Colin Lance had started coming up and he was bolting routes with us. And so Colin and I, we went to town one day and went into the city office and we're like, hey man, you got this little park up the road and we want to have a meeting with the town council. We're like, we should have a meeting. You guys should be aware that this place is going to blow up. It's going to be a big deal. And so we, I think we, we were able to schedule a meeting with the town council and the, and the park people. And we really had to, again, this was, we didn't have a computer. There's no PowerPoints. There was no internet. We, ba- I think we brought a bunch of climbing books and magazines and we're like, Hey, you know, here's Bukes and, in France and here's this place and this place and this place. And people are going to be coming here and they're going to be coming in droves eventually. And this place is going to become a big deal. And you should really figure out how to get in front of it and embrace it because it's going to be an economic driver. Rifle was a cowboy town. It was just a straight up cowboy town back then. Um, Now it's a total hipster cowboy town, but it was totally different back Mm. then. I don't know. It's not quite gone there yet. It's actually now it's oil and gas town. Right. But it's it's super hipster. I mean, there's like coffee shops. Yeah. It's so different. It's different for sure. (laughs) Um, And it was really cool because they, they totally were like, okay, cool. And they, you know, they really, uh, I feel like they really embraced it and they were like, Hey, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, pay for camping and do this. And, we're like we, you know, we're going to need to make parking, and you know, none of that was there. And we we helped we helped create and build the parking lots, and and did our best to minimize impact. You know, in the very beginning of the wasteland, I put all these rocks around, you know, the areas away from the base, so you would be focused on you know just impacting that little spot in front of each route. And you know, obviously, now the whole place is 
trampled, but we really did try and think about how we could tiptoe around the plants and the flora and the fauna and respect the fishermen, the families that would come and, you know, not be loud and obnoxious in the campground or in the canyon and not just be bad stewards, even though I didn't even understand what the word meant. It just seemed natural to not want to mess it all up because it was so good. We were like, oh my God, we cannot mess this place up because I'll go crazy if I don't get to put routes up here. Yeah. it's. I mean, the legacy of the town working with the climbers has has continued. I mean, there's been some pushback here and there. Well, for good reason, I think mostly. And And even though the place feels very much like it's reached capacity these days during the season. I think there's like a stasis that's happened where it's, you know, like you said, the bases, the trampledness of the bases have grown, but have reached their, their point. It's like when I talk about people complain about the polish on the, on the holds, I'm like, well, you know what? It's, they're not getting any more polish. Like they're, they're like little diamonds that have become, they've reached their, their absolute state of polishedness. So you know, just live with it, but it ain't getting worse because it's like, like it's already you know, done. Yeah. It's already done. And that texture is really like, good yeah. in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Everybody jumps on the new roots when they go up and, and they get polished like in six months now. But, uh, but yeah, so it's interesting that that legacy I think has continued. And especially in the last few years has been, I think really solid with the town um, and climbers coming to the plate for, building projects and cleanups and all that sort of thing. So how long was your era, you think, in rifle? Because I yeah. mean, you came, you saw, you conquered, and you left kind of a thing. Um, it was what, 90, was, what were the years in there? It was 90 to probably 95 is when I was done. You know, it was that whole early 90s era, I was working in a gym, trying to become a sponsored climber. So scraping some money together, doing comps, local comps. I did some World Cups, whatever. But I couldn't really commit to the comp thing. I really loved rock climbing too much. So, you know, had I just like stopped rock climbing and, and focused on plastic, I'm sure I, I, I could have crushed even more and got some podiums at World Cups. But I just, I still loved rock climbing so much. It was just fun to have that experience. Um, but yeah, I'd say by 94... I was, was it 94? Yeah. So I'd just gone to the Petrero in 92. Jeff Jackson, I was doing slideshows to kind of scratch a living too. Like, you know, like when I hung out with you in SoCal. And I remember I went to Austin. I'd never even been to Texas. Didn't even know there was climbing in Texas except for Waco. And so I went to Austin to do some slideshows. And that's when I met Jeff at my slideshow. He's like, oh yeah, man, there's this place like, south of the border and i had a few extra days he's like yeah I'm, I'm going tomorrow with this photographer lady you want to go i'm like yeah and i remember going and and that was kind of a game changer for me i was like oh look at those walls how tall untouched cool place and so that's when i kind of was like phasing out of of rifle and so um 94 was my first winter in the Petrero and and I put up a ton of routes and that's when Jeff invited me to finish El Sendero Luminosa with him and at the same time I'd hatched plans with Cosgrove and Epperson to free the mirror wall so it was really like it was it was like this I was kind of done with comps 
I was kind of done with rifle and I was really thinking like, what's going to really inspire me next? What's going to fire my soul and my brain in, in this incredible amount of energy? And it was like, and that was really, it was like kind of like 93 when I really decided like, I could take everything I learned in the 80s with the Stone Masters. I could take everything I learned climbing aid routes on El Cap because I'd done a bunch of, of fairly decent aid routes. I could take everything that I learned in Rifle and Clear Creek and I could apply that to big walls. I was like, oh, this sounds really good. And so I hatched a plan in, in 93 at, in, at Cosgrove's house with him and Epperson, I was like, Hey, let's go free the mirror wall. And Cosgrove's like, what are you talking about? That's like an A4 aid route. And I was like, yeah, well, let's go do it. And let's not do what everybody else, Lynn and everybody else were doing and coming down from the top. I'm like, let's just start at the bottom, see what happens. We'd never done the route. And Greg was like, Oh, this sounds really cool. I'll photograph it. And so we uh, you know, through my networking, got a bunch of sponsors to cough up some money and some gear. And so, yeah, so I, and so this is where 94, this is those even numbers, right? 94 was like a huge year. I like bolted all my first routes in Potrero. I helped finish El Sendero with Jeff and I hatched that plan. So I went from Potrero, I took about two weeks off and went to the Valley and me and Kaz and Epperson spent three months in the Valley and we freed all but 15 feet of the mirror wall on site ground up. And then I'd also had plans to, to go to the Yukon. We had all of our sponsors lined up. So as soon as we got off the mirror wall with that whole brouhaha, we flew to the Yukon and put up um, Yukon tiers of Mount Proboscis. And so it was, in, it was sitting at Cosgrove's house in 93 where I, I hatched this plan to do these three big projects back to back to back, all ground up, all on site. And, uh, and it was just a huge endeavor and super draining and super challenging and super controversial on the mirror wall, but one of the most amazing years of my climbing life and physically demanding, mentally exhausting and spiritually so rewarding as a rock climber. I felt like I come complete full circle. And if that's all I ever did after that, I would have been super happy with that, but I've always wanted more, you know, out of climbing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, we gotta, we can't just pass by the brouhaha just to totally, I mean, it was like history that everybody knew at the time, but it's, it's gone. Um, so you got popped for using a power drill, power drill. Um, yeah. On El Cap, even though um, everybody they like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the whole, the whole nose was bolted with a power drill so that right. they could free it. And, you know, Hey, wait, and, no, you're not allowed to say that. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so for us, you know. That was um, a perfect pure ascent, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, and it was, I mean, what she did was amazing, right? But it, it took Dave Schultz and all these people to kind of get that thing ready for, for her and who, or whoever could do it. And it's totally cool. And I had no issues with that at all, right? I drilled so many routes with a power drill, but what I wanted, and the reason I came to Cosgrove and, and Epperson one night at, at Scott's house was I had so much respect for Royal Royal 
Robbins and TM Herbert's ascent of the mirror wall. And if anybody researches it, it was the first wall in Yosemite that was done without a siege style. So, and I think it was like the fifth route on El Cap, maybe. But they basically packed up all their stuff, started at the bottom, and worked their way to the top. And they ran out of bolts, they ran out of bits, and they ran out of food, and they ran out of water. But they got to the top. And so for me, I was always so inspired by that story as a history buff of climbing that it would have been a complete dishonor to start at the top. I mean, we could have clearly just started at the top like everybody else was doing at the day. And rehearsed and worked, and frigged and set it up and dialed it in and then boom, and then come back and sent it. It would have been such a slap in the face of everything that I respected about the generations before me. And my whole mentality in Scott's and Greg's was like, let's just start at the bottom and see what happens. If we get shut down in the fifth pitch or the 10th pitch or the 20th pitch, and it was you know, A4 and there's no way our fingers were going to fit in it. Awesome. See ya. On to the next thing. And what made that two and a half month project so amazing was every day we would get another pitch free. And it was like, sometimes these are like the most amazing 512 splitters on the freaking planet. I, I'd actually scoped that route out in the winter of 87. I was walking the base of El Cap one day. I was just kind of bored. I was that time I was putting up base routes, looking for really cool routes to do from the ground up. And I had seen the bottom cracks of the mirror wall. And I was like, oh my God, look at these perfect splitters in the corners of the lower pitches. And so I kind of just planted this seed in my brain in 87. And then in 93, I'm like, Scott, we got to go do this thing. Like it's so perfect, you know? And that's what we did. We just showed up. We tried to be super low key and, you know, and people knew, but they also knew that we were like going to do it like ground up. And it was like, oh, that's, that's cool. You know, and every day we would just get hot and we had a, we had to have a siege mentality because we, we would free a pitch and then move up and free the next pitch. And then we'd set up camp and live on the camp for six or eight or 10 days and free the next section and then come down and resupply. But the whole point was like, we didn't know what the next day had in store. We didn't know what the next pitch was going to be like. We didn't even know if we could free the next pitch. And every day we would get higher and higher. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we're higher and it's working. It's going. It's like, we had this great momentum and, you know, physically just exhausting, but just so rewarding every day. And finally, we're like way the hell up on that wall. And, and, oh, and this is the other thing. I think there was only seven bolts that those guys placed on the whole route. It was just amazing. Partially because they ran out of bolts and their bits broke. And so our whole thing too was like, we didn't want to alter the route for the A climbers who were going to come up the next day, the next month or the next year. And so it was really important that A, if there was a bolt, we would yank it and replace it or just clip it and go. And then we really used the power drill to secure all the anchors. So every pitch had a great two bolt anchor and some gear. And then, so we didn't add any bolts to their line. 
Not a single bolt was added to the Muir Wall that they climbed in 64, which was the year I was born. And then we had to do some variations around that route because there was pitches that just for sure would our fingers would never go in. And that was the section of the route we called the shaft. And those pitches got bolts where they needed it. But we walked away freeing all but we basically two pitches from the top. We're sitting on a chicken head, chicken head ledge. Yeah, we're, we're at the top. At this point, we'd moved over to the shield because the, the final pitches didn't look, they looked impossible. So we traversed across the shield head wall, which is one of the most spectacular things I've ever done. Free climbing that pitch over to chicken head ledge. And we were sitting on chicken head ledge going, it's in the bag. Like we're, we're going to do these next three pitches. It's like A1, A1, 5-9. We're literally sitting there like pre-celebrating. And then the next day it was like we found 30 feet that was really hard and we couldn't do it. And we were 12 days into our final push. So we're totally exhausted. We're hauling all of our own stuff. And we really just kind of like gave up on it. And that's when these two guys undercover were on the summit when we summited and we're like, oh, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, we're here to blah, blah, blah. And, and that's when they like had this whole undercover sting operation and they've been watching us for about a week. And somebody on Yosar ratted us out and told the Rangers we're up there just power drilling our way up El Cap, which we really weren't. And that's all how it all went down. And it was really uh, heartbreaking to spend like two and a half months and like more energy expended than, than an average human's lifetime. And then all of a sudden these guys want to put us in cuffs and they wanted to fly us off in a helicopter, which would have costed, you know, however many tens of thousands of the government government's money. And somebody higher up was like, Oh, it's a bad idea. Just give him a citation. We'll see him in court later. But it was really like the biggest bubble you could ever have burst after such a, we were already so bummed that we couldn't free 30 feet, literally 100 feet from the top. And then we were so demoralized after that whole incident that we didn't want to go back. We could have just gone back a week later, wrapped down, top rope that pitch to submission, freed it, and then been, and then been like, okay, we freed it. We we're like, nope, that was cool. That's exactly what we set out to do. We were going to free it until we couldn't free it, and then we were going to walk away. And that's what we did. And I have no regrets. I would have done it exactly the same way. And had we freed that thing, it would have been the most original, monumental LCAT free route. And we got 99% of it. And I'm totally happy with that. We went up to Proboscis with Greg Epperson. The next year, maybe two years after you guys went up, I remember him telling me this because I thought it was you that told me this, but now I remember it was Greg that that you guys were pretty bummed by the whole sting. And, and I mean, there was like, it, it sounds like there was some sort of deeper betrayal in it. Uh, certainly as far as like, aside from the citation and things like that, it just kind of like probably crumbled your image of like what it's like to be in the Valley and, and climbers having each other's backs and stuff like that. So, I was totally um, over it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like, let, you know, this is before the internet, right? So there's like, Letters in the magazines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and some people are like, oh, my God, mad props to you guys. And others were like, I can't believe you like power drilled that thing into submission, which we did not do. And I remember I was doing slideshow tours 
the year after for those three routes, which we did in a row. And some people will come up and be like, oh my God, amazing, right? And other people are like, you motherfuckers, you know, and they would just like want to slag me in front of me. And I'd just be like, hey, who the hell are you? B, have you ever climbed El Cap? C, do you even know what the hell you're talking about? Like, it was really interesting. You know, today, now it's like, yeah, it's so wild. Right. So you, stu- you just we stuck to our convictions, sorry. you know, and, right. and we left the route intact. So if you wanted to come up later as an eight climber, there is no additional bolts that would diminish what being an eight climber on. A- and this is, this is why I, I find it's a little sad now that, you know, the Dawn wall and the Zodiac and all these things are free climbs and that's cool. But it's completely ruined it if you want to go up an A climb because you're not going to not clip that bolt on the A4 pitch. So our whole thing was we just wanted to respect our elders and respect the original ascent. And then we wanted to leave it intact for everybody after us to experience what an A climber normally would experience. There's definitely a reckoning at the moment, which I think is overdue, um, about fixed lines on these routes as well. And I've... I feel like there's there's a big enough push happening against that that it's going to start to disappear. People leaving what I'm specifically is like leaving fixed lines to work free climbs that people still aid climb. And you know, the Salad Day is not a particularly difficult aid climb, but it's just aesthetically annoying and diminishes anyone's ascent to come up on new or ratty old fixed lines or or whatever it happens to be. And I I, like I said, there's plenty of media now that's pushing back against that. Um, the Rangers are, and so hopefully that's also changing because I find it also very uh, egotistical to, you know, to have to use those tactics and then allow, you know, you to diminish other people's ascents. And it's it's fine to use the tactics. It's just clean the ropes up. Like don't leave them. Use them for the day and and take them off, kind of a thing. So so super interesting. You know, when the whole bolt war hangdogging, rap holding thing was going on in, in 87 and 88. I was never privy to the American Alpine Club panels that they would have. Yeah, yeah Backer. Backer was and like the pop. soul. Yeah, he's like the soul yeah, he was him and, uh, him and Franklin were on one together. He right. talked about it in his interview. Yeah. But the <laughs> on thing each is, side, right? <laughs> what's so interesting about that whole episode was John and me and so many others were like, look, if you let this cat out of the bag in five or 10 years, this is what's going to happen. Rap bolting and grid bolting and bolts all over El Cap and all over every crag in America and, and the spirit of adventure evaporating. And guess what? It happened. And that's what we're dealing with today. You know, you talk about the Salafe. Um, that was my second El Cap route. I did it in 85 with Mike Corbett, who was Mr. El Cap back then, before that term was even a thing. And he was like, hey, kid, do you want to go do a hammerless ascent of the Salafe? That hasn't been done yet. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, we don't pound any pitons in. I'm like, uh, okay. And this is my second time in El Cap. And, and I'm terrified of heights, right? Like it's taken me forever to get over that. And so we did the second ascent 
Or no, we did the first hammerless ascent. And this was, a, I think, a year or two before Piana and Skinner show up. And so I remember just what an, what an impactful experience that whole thing was. And he led all the hard stuff. And he only asked me to do it because he wanted me to free the scary free climbing stuff. Like the, that one off width pitch that doesn't have any pro. I don't even remember what the hell it's called. But he sent me up on all the gnarly free climbing stuff. And then he did all the gnarly A climbing stuff. But I remember it was like such a crazy experience. And I was terrified the whole time. And I learned so much, which was great. And then I did a bunch of El Cap routes the next year. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting, you know, like now I would, I think if I went and did the South, it would be kind of a bummer actually, because you'd just be sport climbers all over the thing, you know? And I'm like cameras and, and sponsors everywhere. And it's just like, wow. So I'm so glad I got that era out of my system when it was still original and pure, you know? And I, I love all these modern climbers to death, but it's just not pure anymore. And it's all sponsor driven and social media driven. And, and that's cool. And that's the modern world. But I just feel really lucky that Rick got me into rock climbing in 79. And I met so many people along the way that really helped me become the climber that I am. Because at the end of the day, it's all about your friends and your partners. And, and all my partners that I've climbed with over the years, you know, have really been amazing in those. I think I put a lot of my friends through bloody hell, belaying me on these gnarly ass runouts that we probably all should have died on. And, uh, and if I ever write a book, it's like, I got to get Ken Ariza and Dave Hatchett and Rick Lovelace to write their own chapters. Cause there's a lot of horror stories in there, you know, that we just somehow managed to survive every day, have fun or get hurt real bad. Let me ask you this: the three you mentioned three routes. There was the 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 mirror, um, Sendero. What was in the route? March. On? Okay, Sendero. Right, Sendero Luminoso in March. Right, the mirror wall in the summer, and then so I literally did Sendero. Took two weeks off. Went to the valley. Did the mirror wall. Took two weeks off. Resupplied. Flew to the Yukon and did Yukon Tears. Right, which was just to the right of um, Great Canadian Knife, um, the route that that Paul Piana and Todd Skinner put up up there, and I mean, you talked about sort of exhaustion, talk about a bu bubble bursting. And I kind of wondered if like during, I mean, these, you know, you, you start by saying like, oh, I had these, these amazing years, like every two years for a decade or more. I mean, did you ever feel that like burnout before that? Or did you ever feel like this life is, I mean, I'm, how do I keep this going? I mean, it's just, it was such an incredibly fertile period for a lot of climbers but you in particular were just everywhere all the time upping your game upping your game doing different things doing the work i mean that's the thing too is like the work involved in all this sort of stuff is what keeps a lot of people who are certainly talented enough to climb those routes as far as the climbing is concerned it's the work that stops people as much as anything yeah i mean I grew up in a working class family. We were lower middle class, probably in the seventies. My parents were basically like, I distinctly remember when we moved to Tahoe, we moved to, we went from living in a trailer in Indiana, which is a crazy story uh, to my dad somehow getting a job and getting bailed out by a friend and getting a job in Lake Tahoe. So we moved I was born in, in a trailer. Yeah. It was really <laughs> <So>. gnarly. Um, <laughs> 
We so we moved to Incline Village, which in the seventies was one of the ri- top ten richest communities in the country. I grew up with some of the most wealthiest kids on the planet. Kids who would go to a ski academy that was in town, and they would spend their summers in South America skiing, and then they come back and and go to school. And we were like, really, not we were lower middle class. But I remember, like, I was thirteen. All my friends had like BMX bikes. This is like when BMX just started becoming a thing. They all these like really nice bikes. They're probably like 200 bucks, right? In 19, what, 78. That was like a lot of money. And I remember I was bugging my parents all spring. I'm like, I want a BMX bike. I want a BMX bike. And they're like, yeah, you should definitely have a BMX bike. I'm like, buy me a BMX bike. They're like, go get a job, kid. And we're eating dinner at Carlos Mexican Food, our local Mexican restaurant. And I remember walking up to Carlos after dinner and I'm like, it was like a Thursday or Wednesday. I don't even remember. He's, I'm like, I really want a job. He's like, I'm like this short 13 year old <laughs> white boy, right? I literally am like really short, super skinny. I probably look like I'm 11, right? Cause I have this baby face. He's like, really? Gringo? He's like, show up on Friday after school, show up on Friday. I'm like washing dishes. I literally took a job away from a Mexican dishwasher, you know, and the whole, everybody in the kitchen is just like destroying me, right? They're like talking smack and Spanish and giving me mountains of dishes. And I'm like crying and it's like eight o'clock and I'm like, it's like the worst experience of my life, right? I get home and I'm like crying and I'm like, my dad's like, no, man, you can't quit. You got to go back tomorrow. You want that bike? You got to go back tomorrow. And I remember rolling in there the next day and I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure this shit out. And a bunch of those guys in the kitchen started like giving me some respect because I showed up and I did the work and I stopped crying and Pretty soon they're like, hey, gringo, come over here and learn how to chop tomatoes and come over here and learn how to prep. And and so I worked in restaurants from 13 till I was 25. I'd say six months later, I was a, maybe a year later, I was like a prep cook in that kitchen and I learned how to cook. And so I worked in restaurants all through high school. I didn't go to the prom. I didn't go to any proms. I was 40 hours a week. I got that BMX bike and then I bought my <laughs> first car, you know, and then I went to the valley. Because I had to. We didn't have a trust fund. I grew up with a lot of trust funders. And you talked about the work. You know, in my early days as a sponsored climber, there were plenty of my friends who didn't have to work, could just go climbing every day. They could go to Europe and climb. They could spend six months in J-Tree. They had a really nice vehicle. And I just had to scrape and work whatever job every year to get that prize, to get that thing that I wanted. And so I'm blessed with my parents who were super cool with letting me live my life. I, when I graduated, I was like, I don't want to go to college. They're like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I just want to go rock climbing. And this is before there was anything to get out of rock climbing other than going rock climbing. It wasn't like, oh, you could go rock climbing, maybe become a sponsored athlete and then eventually become a sales rep. No, I just wanted to go rock climbing. This is 1982. And they're like, that's cool. We don't want to pay for college if you don't want to go. Just support yourself and and don't kill yourself. And we're cool with it. 
And that's how I was raised. You know, that's how I'm raising my kid. That's how Paley and I are raising Milo to work hard and, and uh, to earn what it is you want in life. Cause it doesn't come easy. And, and I was always plenty jealous of a lot of my friends who didn't have to do that stuff. But uh, it's just, yeah, the work thing, you know, you got to have a, a good work ethic. You're in my purview in a couple ways. Like I said, we, we kind of hung out in that era in the 90s. Um, I also, like I said, I showed up uh, with Epperson. I think it might have been two seasons later, but it might have been the next season. I can't quite remember. When were you up at the Canadian? 94. Was it 94? Okay, yeah. so yeah, I think we were up there in 96. Yeah. I mean, up at Proboscis, sorry. Magical um, place, man. Wow. Yeah, and you know, and Epperson had been on both. And so he guided us to the cave and, yeah. you know, there's like a bolt to hang your yeah, top off the of cave. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we, we also, we had like an interesting trip. We did an aid climb to the right again of your route. And, uh, but we had like 16 or 17 days of rain. So we spent a lot of time in that cave also like brooding. And I think that's when Maybe Epperson was like, yeah, those guys were pretty dark on that trip. And yeah, we were, about yeah. Their thing and yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cosgrove didn't come. It was me and Jeff Jackson. Right. So we had reunited after Sendero, you know, many months earlier. But I was totally burnt. I was fighting this gnarly foot infection. I was totally exhausted, but also so inspired by that wall. Again, I read about um, the first ascent of that wall by, by um, Core. Robbins, McCarthy, Robbins. and McCracken. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And, and I yeah. think that was also in '64. So I remember being just like, that's why we picked up Proboscis. It was like, let's go to that wall. Let's honor their ascent. Let's honor the tradition that we grew up with. Let's start at the bottom. Let's go to the top, and let's clean this route and drill as many bolts as we need to make it awesome. And and we freed the whole thing. And and we had the best weather ever. I think we had like five days of rain and three weeks of sun. We actually finished early and we could have done more, but we were so cooked and we were running out of food. But I remember like looking at that wall and I and like the next route and the next route and the next route. And I had dreams of going back. I was like, oh, I got to come back next year. and I'm going to free that route. I'm going to bolt that route. I'm going to do this route. And I never got back, which is cool. Totally good with it. But yeah, it was a super dark trip, um, but also super rewarding. And I feel like after that, I was like, okay, I checked that box and now I can go back to the Potrero. And so I focused 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. I just set my sights on bolting everything I could possibly bolt in the Potrero. Let me, let me uh, slow you down there because that's, that's somewhere I want to go. But um, I just want to ask a little bit about Scott um, Cosgrove. He also figures as one of your partners that you bounced off of you you were driven by um you were great friends um tell me a little bit about that partnership because it it fit in that sort of post you know pure stone master era um leading up to these big walls and stuff like that and and i also you know casually knew scott when i lived in southern california and was all the same thing he was this sort of you know guy this enigma that i was like yeah that's scott cosgrove and and when i did get to know him you know i was like Oh yeah, that's Scott Cosgrove. Like it all fit with with his rep and everything else. And and he's since passed, and it's very sad. And and I read actually uh, a tribute you wrote to him, yeah. um, talking about space babble and, and those space early babble. days. So tell oh me a little, yeah. <laughs> let me tell me a little bit about yeah uh, your partner with with ship with Scott. Yeah, I tear up when I think about Cosgrove. You know, um, 
so we were the same age and uh, he was the chosen one, right? He was climbing in the valley much earlier than I, done so much more before I showed up in 80. My first trip was there in 82, but I didn't really show up in the valley until 84, right? That year. And he had already had like, he was like the guy. He was like the chosen one, right? And uh, and here's this kid from Tahoe that nobody knows, just firing all this shit, right? And so I think he was like, he was like, he he was definitely competitive, and I don't really feel like I was competitive. I was driven, which I feel like is a difference. But he one day was like, oh. I see you're the kid, huh? Everybody's talking about you. I'm like, yeah, who are you? He's like, I'm Scott Cosgrove. I'm like, oh, I I know about you. You've done this and that and this and that. And he's like, hey, let's go do space babble. I'm like, what's that? He's like, oh, yeah, it's this calc route on Lower Cathedral. Never had a second. He's all, it's really sketchy. I'm like, oh, okay, let's do it, you know? And so we go and, and... Climb this really gnarly route. You know, it's dirty. There's like, I don't know, just a couple of bolts on this thing. Super sketchy anchors. And we somehow pull off this ascent. I remember he's leading this one pitch that has no pro. It's like 5'9". He's like 50 feet above me. No gear. Kind of sketching or just kind of dealing with dirty, gnarly, where the holds, where do you go climbing, which is have fun or get hurt real bad. And I remember I, I like, remember like unclipping, clipping the blade of ice to the anchor and stepping off to the side and, and thinking, well, if he falls, I don't want to die too. I remember doing something super sketchy, but somehow we get, we do the route, we wrap off and it really solidified this partnership. And I think I was still a rival to him, but at the same time he was like, man, that was awesome. That was a great experience. He's really, really tall. I'm really, really short. Um, so we did a bunch of routes. I think that year we did the Smith yeah, Crop. The we physical the thing is something yeah. to note for people is that, yeah, he's tall and super lanky. Yeah. And yeah, you are sort of this fire plug dude. And um, so I, that's an image I love with the two of you. And there's plenty of pictures of you guys together that... Um, not plenty, actually, yeah. but there's some, and it's real distinctive. It's real funny. I love it. I feel like a few weeks later, we went and did the second ascent of the Smith Crawford on Cathedral. And I remember every pitch that I had to follow was desperate to get his his friends out because he was so tall. He'd stand on a stance and put the friend in, and I would get to the stance and can't even reach it. So I'd have to like climb up and find this horrible way to get the gear out. But we developed this really amazing bond. And we would climb and we would go bouldering together. But yeah, you know, we we shared a lot of adventures and a lot of similar dreams and friendly rivalry. Um, I remember in 88, you know, we were both still on the trad side of the fence and we were both like obsessed with putting up hard routes in J-Tree. And I put up my five, first 513 there, which is hold your fire. And he did his first 513, which was the Sun Bowl. We would blade each other on our projects. But I always had mad respect for him. And, um, you know, we didn't do a lot of stuff together. We both kind of had our own ways and our own partners. But whenever we did connect, it was just like magic, right? Like same energy, same vision, uh, friendly camaraderie. And that was, you know, and then that was the winner. I was like, 
hey man or then that's when i was like in 93 i was like he's guiding i'm in josh climbing and i was like man we should go do this fucking mirror wall thing he's like oh what are you talking about we had some amazing times together and then after his accident you know i came out to josh and we we reconnected and it was great to see him kind of get back on his feet. And then, yeah, when he died, I, I went to his funeral and it just crushed me. But yeah, I still cry. It sort of feels like you've got that burnout era or that year. That really, year. You did all these incredible big, big climbs, but it kind of got you at your wits end. And it seems like that Petrero then was sort of your, I don't know, I don't want to say at the time it was your retirement, but it, it felt like I'm going to go down here and set up my life and this is chill like it's there i can go down here and do my own thing yeah you know nobody's there's nobody yelling about ethics or about totally. power drills or about anything like that i can kind of disappear to this place but also like create this place yeah um which again if people go down there they they see your name on things if but don't realize what it was when you got there to what yeah. it became but then it also ended in uh you know to use your word a, a fairly serious brouhaha totally um i crossed paths with you again there too so tell me a little bit yeah. about that move to those next six years you know just kind of disappearing to mexico and yeah. again, no social media totally you did when you went down there you disappeared you know yeah you, you had to buy a card to call the states and totally. you probably didn't do it very often <laughs> yeah it was really cool because at that point, I, you know, not having a trust fund and having to constantly scrape together a way to make ends meet from, you know, a little bit of money from sponsorship, I really realized that this whole slideshow thing was a great vehicle for me where I could, I could spend May, June, July, August, September booking these tours around the country, coordinating with my brands and the reps to come to those climbing gyms or those climbing stores and get paid decent money. And if you banged enough slideshows together in a loop, and kept your expenses tight, I would have money for the whole winter in Mexico. I figured this formula out really quick. And when Jeff took me there in 93, that first trip, it was just like three days. I remember we got there at night. So it was dark and you kind of just see the outline. It was like, oh, those are big walls. And then, I remember waking up before the sun had come up and I walked into the canyon and it was truly like I got my, I got shivers down my spine and I felt like I was walking into the valley in like 1950. I literally was like an out of body experience where I'm like Warren Harding, who was like my freaking hero because he was such a badass and such a rebel. I felt like I was walking into the valley in 1950. Here's this blank canvas of amazing rock. There's a handful of established routes from the Mexican climbers and from the from the Texas climbers, but it was basically a blank canvas. And when I laid eyes on the outrage wall, I was like, oh, well, that's a rifle by like 600 feet with 2,000 feet of rock above it. And so I knew, I was like, oh, I got to come back. And so that first winter, 80, 94, you know, you know, my first route that I bolted was El Camino del Diablo. I was down there with Phil Benningfield. And uh, that's when I connected with Ned Harris out of Boulder. And he was my partner for Mexico. We spent three winters together. He was just doing carpentry. He, you know, he was at one of my slideshows early on at, at Neptune. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going down for three months. He's like, well, I don't have anything to do for three months. And so he came with me. My first route there was like 13D seam. My second route was Surfer Rosa up in the surf bowl. First route on that wall. And it was, again, it was just like stick a needle in my vein, right? I was just like, oh my God, this is so great. And so I could just take my ground up tactics and apply it to, you know, the Moto wall, which is like classic warmups, five nines and five tens, or, you know, the first route we, the first route on the outrage wall and that and I did was um, time, time for living, which is named after the Beastie Boys, you know, six pitches of overhanging limestone tufas, you know, didn't get any better than that. You know, the people in that town just embracing us and becoming friends with Emilio and Amaro and all of his cousins and neighbors. And it was just so unique. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was like, I was going to bolt. I was going to clean. We would take the Mexican kids climbing. And then I'd go on the road the next season. And that was next year's slideshow. And so I'd go from city to city and I'd be like, hey, there's this place in Mexico. It's really easy to drive to. Catch a plane to Monterey. Super cheap. The town is cool. The cops are cool. The drug lords hadn't, it wasn't a thing yet. And I kind of learned this from Rifle. It's like we could have an impact on the economy. And this was an area that was super poor, obviously, you know, cement plant was really the economic driver and the, you know, and that town had embraced that park and they built that swimming pool park. But, you know, I, I quickly realized like we have an opportunity to really enrich a lot of people's lives down there and give people an opportunity to turn their home into a campground and to make a restaurant and feed the gringos and, you know, and the slideshows drove that bus. Like I would come to your city and do a slideshow and you'd be like, oh man. And here and I'd be like, here's all the beta. This is again before the internet. So you couldn't just go to Google and go, how do I get there? And I'm like, here's the map. Here's the border. This is what you do. And here's how you get here. And you know, you bring a thousand bucks. You could live there for how many months? And, and we, uh, we did it. Like we turned it into a destination in articles in the magazine. And it just really, it worked perfectly. And for me, it was just great because I got to go down there and climb and just bolt the choicest lines on every wall every day, and try and do it really safely and make it clean and make it fun and uh, make a lasting impact on that place. And that's, and I, I wanted to live there. Like I wanted to, I was like, I'm in, like, I want to get married. I want to live down there, raise a family. It was just so welcoming. And, uh, you know, I partnered with this guy who said he owned this land and I got some investors to build some houses and I built this amazing campground and the dream was like humming along. And then it all just went to shit when we had all these arguments. It turns out he didn't even own the land and everything we were doing was totally sketchy and illegal. And he completely just robbed me blind, basically. And uh, I thought I would was going to get a bullet. In my head, and oh, I thought I was going to be buried in the desert. Basically, is how it all went down. Yeah, I I ended up going down there for the um for the millennium. Yeah, for it was Y two K. Such right? a banging party, right? Oh my God. A, so, uh, yeah, but then there was already hints of it. You know, totally. That, 
you know, because we were making it, money and he was making yeah. money and his cousin yeah. it was his cousin who turned it all sour. This, I really? don't even remember his name. Yeah. Cause Omero. Yeah. And, and again, like plenty of people have been down there. It's like this, you know, this awesome destination, like vacation climbing place. Um, even with, you know, you mentioned the, the cartel and stuff like not being there, there's hints of it, but it's still, it's still really just a great safe destination place. And, um, even when I went there in 2000, which was several years after you'd started, um, you had your place and was sort of coming online basically in Omero's place. And that was it. I actually read a post. I found it. It's like, I don't know where it is. It's on some, some website somewhere that's still up from the 1990s, you know, um, where you, you posted and you sort of said, Hey, this is what's going on. Don't go down there. And you sort of hinted at all the things that went down and yeah, it sounded super gnarly. And, and once again, you know, bursting this bubble and this betrayal. And I mean, it must've been just really heavy for you to, to like, again, you talked about the welcoming and then all of a sudden this whole, this whole thing like had been going on. So, you know, underneath or behind your back for, for a while, like it sounded like there was sort of this plan to kind of get you out of there totally. at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really heartbreaking because, you know, in the early years of, of building that campground, you know, when we would leave in April and, you know, plan on returning in, you know, November or whatever, I would send his family money every month. I'd send them like 200 bucks, 300 bucks, whatever. Like it was so much money for them. It was like, okay, here's a little money each month until we get back and then we can get the business cranking again. And, you know, we really just put a lot of trust in everybody and they trusted us and we trusted them. And, and, uh, yeah, it was really sad to see how just a little bit of money and a little bit of success can completely change everybody. And, uh, and yeah, the dream just got crushed and, and that was kind of it for me. Like that was really when I achieved, that was the burnout. I'd never burned out, but at that it was, and then, yeah, my move to West Virginia with Elena, my wife at the time in 2004, $30,000 in credit card debt no more sponsorships. And that's when I became a rep and, and managed to, you know, claw my way out of this black hole of pain and, and remorse and debt and, and just completely shift my focus to becoming a sales rep and earning a living and, and becoming the best that I could possibly be in that professional world. I was kind of like leading this whole thing up to there because it, it feels like, yeah, that was the, I mean, as far as like you as a climber, I don't know what you continued to do personally, but that was yeah. like, that's, that's it. You know, that's like the end of the Wikipedia entry if totally. I didn't look it up, but, and, and it was burnout to climbing and the weight of what had happened and like dreams kind of popped, um, that took you out of it. Yeah. I, I feel like at that point, like I turned 40. Oh my God. You know, we're like flat broke. <laughs> right. All this debt. There's no bailout. Right. And then it was just like, yeah, now it's time to like go find a career. I never went to college. It's not like I could fall back on my degree and whatever. And I certainly didn't want to work in restaurants anymore. And so 
with the help of Gene and Maura Kistler, I, I bought the guide service at New River Mountain Guides at Waterstone Outdoors. And, you know, Gene helped us buy that business because we had nothing going on. And I started running the guide service. And then Doug Reed calls me up. He's like, hey, man, getting out of repping, moving to Asheville, Sterling Rope, Misty Mountain, 510 are available. And so I was sponsored by Misty. So that was an easy phone call. Goose is like, hell yeah, we want you to become a sales rep for us. And then I call Sterling Rope and Carolyn's like, no way in hell. You have such this bad boy reputation in the industry. But um, Paul Nyland, bless his heart, like convinced her. He was like, no, you, you should hire this guy. And so she really got me, she got me my first job still with Sterling Rope 19 years later. It'll be 20 years next year. And uh, I didn't know anything about repping. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, guys like Dawson Wheeler at Rock Creek really kind of held my hand through it. And Kenny Parker at Waterstone and other friends of mine really kind of helped me. And I, I didn't, couldn't get the 510 job. They gave it to somebody else. And then uh, I think a year or so later, I picked up Evolve, which I've been with for 18 years. And just like that day when I decided I wanted a BMX bike, I was like, I'm going to put aside my obsession with rock climbing because I've lived just about every dream I could have possibly imagined. And I still climb, but I was like, now it's time to become the best freaking sales rep I can possibly be and crawl claw my way out of debt and uh and move on to the next obsession which is becoming a working professional and uh, earn a really good living was still climbing and still bolting routes but it was not obsessed i'm no longer obsessed with rock climbing i love rock climbing it'll still always be a big part of my life but i'm not obsessed about it i don't care how hard i climb i don't care if i'm skinny or fat i don't care if i have to hang on something or can't get up something. I just still really, I'm really back to now the early days when it's just pure joy and adventure without any pressures of failure. And success is just taking my wife and my kid and climbing with my family and my friends and, you know, bolting five. I still love to bolt, right? So we spent the summer searching new rock in Nevada and we got this secret spot in California and I'm and now when I go climbing, I'm out there bolting routes for my son and for my wife and my friends to climb. And I have just as much joy in putting up a 5.9 route that nobody's ever going to climb as I used to. I'm just no longer like obsessed with the whole game. And I got lots of friends who are at my age and it's totally cool and I respect that. Now I just want to go have fun and work really hard and earn a good living. What about the decision to start a family? Did that feel natural? I mean, yeah, you know, one of these things where you were the type of climber that I'm sure would have would have like laughed at that when you were totally. like 25. This idea of raising a child, totally. and like, I can't even keep myself, you know, fed. I know. Kind of thing. I like, would have been a yeah. I probably would have been a horrible <laughs> parent in my 20s and 30s. Yeah. I'm sure because yeah. I was so obsessed with climbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I got divorced and then I met Pei Lee. You know, we were friends in Fayetteville and just fell in love and got married. And I, it just really dawned on me, you know, when I met her, I was 
49. And it re- I just kind of had this epiphany that like I wanted a, a more out of my life and more out of my legacy, if that's a word, than a bunch of names in the guidebook. And so it was really like, it was just this moment where I was like, man, I really want more out of this next chapter in my life. And having a kid is the ultimate obsession and responsibility and super difficult, super joyous, you know, so many things that go into being a parent, super difficult and super awesome in the same sentence. But I wanted, I wanted just more out of the rest of my life than to be known as somebody who just bolted all these routes or climbed this or climbed that. And so, yeah, we had, we had Milo and he was premature by three and a half months, three months. And, uh, he's eight and a half and he's awesome. And we have a great life together. We're a great family. And we, we mountain bike, downhill mountain bike, we ski. I'm back to skiing again. I, that was my first love. And so I'm super psyched that I'm a skier and my families are skiers. And, and, uh, he's just now getting into rock climb and he's kind of like tall enough to be able to climb the new. And we're not the type of parents that are obsessed with our kids, our kid being like, this big deal climber or this big deal skier or this big, we just want to go have fun and raise him to have fun and let him enjoy these things without the pressure of like, Oh, you got to become a world cup climber or you got to become a world cup skier or, or whatever. And if, uh, and if that's his path later, that's awesome. But for us, it's all about doing this stuff together as a family and making it fun and not making it this epic or not like, pushing my dream onto him, but doing these things together as a family because they're fun to do as a family. And if he becomes obsessed with it on his own and wants to pursue it, we'll support it. But we don't want to drive that bus because I'm really good friends with Chris Linder. I watched him grow up as this two parents that were obsessed with making him what they were. And I've seen this with other parents that I won't mention. And then I saw Chris just burn out. And now he's got kids and he probably feels the same way. He was like, that was cool. And that was great for a while, but then it really sucked. We just want to raise him to be a good person and enjoy these things. And if, if the passion and obsession takes him to a professional level later, we'll 100% support it. But we're not going to just push him down that road. Leading up to this, we talked about how this, you know, when you said, what do you want to talk about? I said, oh, your whole life. And he said, yeah, well, let's see. We got 16 or 20 hours. Um, And that's just your climbing life, to be honest with you. I mean, there's so many stories we skipped and we jumped around. And But is there, you know, and take a minute or whatever, is there a, I don't know, a story we missed that we, we, we got to hear? Is there a person you climbed with that you, that we didn't mention that you wanted to talk about? Is there a, a run in with the Rangers and camp for, I don't know what it is. Um, anything out there that, that like couple beers in, I don't know if you drink still, but you know, you'll get to telling at a, at a, with a group of climbers. Really? I, I guess a really powerful climbing adventure that still means so much to me is, uh, the end of the 84 season in Tuolumne, right? So, me and Steve Schneider, I think we're the same. No, he's a little older than me, but we were both 
in the in Tuolumne in this early summer, and we're both trying really hard to get on the rescue team, Yosar, because that's your meal ticket, right? That's your the Rangers don't hassle you. You get a you get a campsite in Yosar. You get paid if you have to go do a search or a rescue. The Rangers don't hassle you. And you get to go rock climbing and the Rangers don't hassle you, right? Your two weeks day. And so it was like, so we finally get on Yosar and we're like tearing it up. Like I'm putting up new routes. He's putting up new routes. You know, we're both climbing and repeating and just sending where I'm 20. He's, I don't know, 21 or 22. It's like the beginning of your prime. And then I do the backer year end which is kind of like a big deal, third ascent. And everybody's like, who's this kid, right? And I'm putting up a bunch of really gnarly first ascents that nobody's ever going to go do. And um, it's the end of the season, and I'd done a bunch of Fairview routes, repeats of like some of the hardest stuff up there, ground up, on site, no fall. It's just firing, right? Everything's just clicking age 20 i weigh 120 pounds it's just my brain is right my body is right i'm so what do you guys have on your feet sorry oh yeah boreal fee race fee race is just coming off yeah and i'm like climbing with john had taken me under his wing so i'm I'm, i feel like this huge honor just every day to just be around that guy and he's like hey kid let's go bouldering hey kid let's go soloing i'm like following him on a solo circuit things i could have never imagined in 1980, when I'm reading Yosemite Climber in Rick's Rick's house, right? And uh, I spy this line on the far left side of Fairview Dome, the dirty, dark side, way left of the regular route. There's nothing over there. It's like the no man's land of Fairview. And I spy this gorgeous line. And I spent days with binoculars at different times of day, hiking from different angles. To s- and the light only hits the wall at the end of the day. You only get a couple of hours to see the light where it's just going to reveal the features. And I've always, for some reason, when I first learned how to put up that first route in J-Tree, my vision changed. And from that day forward, I could look at a piece of rock and it was no longer a mystery. Whereas before that first bolt, it would just look like another blank piece of rock or whatever. And all of a sudden, I could see what I couldn't see before, if that makes sense. And so I spent a bunch of days eyeballing and picking this route through the the, the dirty, dark side of Fairview. And so I go to Steve. I'm like, hey, man, I got this line. I really want to do it. I think we can do it. And so... I take him over there and he's like, okay, yeah. And so the next morning we get up real early. It's late in the season. It's really cold out. There's nobody in the park. And I was like, hey, let's make sure we do this thing as clean and as pure as we could. And this is our mantra. You know, it was always like the bolt, the hand drill was the last resort, not your first option. And so I led the first pitch. And then he led the second pitch, which took, took us out of this first little crack across the first piece of face. And he gets in his pitch, which is really gnarly. Maybe one bolt and, and a, a two bolt anchor and the, the day is done. And we repel, 
We don't fix any ropes. And we're back in camp. And we're eating dinner. And Vern Clevenger and Claude Fiddler, who are on Yosar, who are the old guard. And they're literally just a few years older than us. But they're like the legends, right? And they've been watching us all summer. I'm sure they were like, just kind of like, what are you guys doing? And so I remember they come into our campsite. They're like, what are you guys doing on Fairview? And we're like, what do you mean? We're putting up a new route. And they're like, kind of ripping into us. They're like, you got no business being over there. We've been watching you guys all summer. And they just kind of like, really just gave us the heat. And they were just kind of giving us shit. And it was a little confrontational. And I was just like, "Uh, no, (laughs) I'm not having any of this, right? Like, F you, you know. You're old, you're tired, you're done. We're over it. We're 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 gonna do what we're gonna do, and we're gonna put up this route, and you will never, ever be able to climb it. They literally lit a fire at me. I was like, that's it. You're screwed. Good luck. When we're done with this thing, forget about it. After they left, I'm like, all right, Steve, we will put the least amount of quarter inch bolts in this route as possible. We are going to hang our ass out like John did on the back of your end. And we're going to leave a statement for Vern and Claude. And so we go back the next day and we we really wanted to do something different. So instead of fixing ropes, we we wrapped, pulled our ropes. So the next day he led my pitch, the first pitch, which is kind of gnarly. I led his pitch, the second pitch, which was really gnarly. So we had a pretty good grasp of where his head was at, where my head was at. And so we strike off on pitch three and we get pitch three in and it's freezing cold. We have like, there's no modern climbing equipment, clothing that that could keep us warm or like freezing cold. And we're like shivering at the belay while we're running it out. Each person's running it out. Another pitch up, and we we climb through these amazing sections of face with one bolt here and a piton there and a stopper here and a friend there, and we get through this head wall and we traverse over and there's like one more gnarly looking pitch and then we should have it in the bag. Tap, I leave the belay and I tap in this quarter inch bolt and it's a spinner. So I only can get like half of it in. I clip it. It's getting late. It's going to be dark soon. There's no bailing. We can't wrap off this thing because we're so circuitously up on this wall that there's no way we can just repel. We have to finish. No headlamp, a windbreaker and a hat and a pair of Gramici pants or whatever. So I drill this spinner. I'm like, F this shitty bolt. Watch me, Steve. And I'm just climbing and I want to drill a bolt, but I can't and I won't. And I keep climbing and I want to drill a bolt, but I can't because I can't stop, but I want to. And I just keep running it out, running it out, running it out, running it out. I get like, I don't know, 40 feet above this thing. I'm doing these slippery mantles. You've climbed a Tuolumne. Slippery mantles on that gold polish. And I finally like get another bolt in, clip it, get through that, get to the belay. He comes up. He's like, oh, my God, that was freaking gnarly. It was only like 10D. Finish the last few pitches on gear to the top. We get to the top. We're both just like exhausted, exhilarated, jacked on adrenaline. 
And, uh, and that's what became burning down the house. And it's, I think it's nine pitches. There's seven lead bolts for the whole route, five belay bolts. And that's it. A couple pieces of gear, maybe a couple stopper placements, maybe a couple friend placements. But that was our statement to Vern and Claude and, and everybody at the end of what became an amazing year. And I went to the Valley and did the lightning right after that. And uh, Steve and I still aren't sure if it's ever had a second ascent. It's only 11C, but it's gnarly. And I feel like it's my most prideful, amazing experience. And had those guys not come into our campsite that night, it probably would have nine bolts or 12 bolts or 15 <laughs> bolts, but it really lit a fire <laughs> under us and under me at, at, at age 20. And I was like, man, this is, we're just going to, we're going to hang it out just like John did on the B and Y and we're going to leave our mark. And uh, it's an amazing line. Like I still get goosebumps thinking about it. I would love to see somebody go repeat it if it's never had a second. I would love to hear their stories on it. Burning down the house. Yeah, you know, for me, it's it's emotional. You know, I get a little choked up thinking about this stuff because, you know, that 13-year-old kid wanting to wash dishes to get a BMX bike, you can never in your youth see what's coming. Some people can. Maybe some people could chart their future but i couldn't and uh i'm super grateful that my parents moved to tahoe and i met rick and tommy t and then eventually we met dave hatchett you know look at the hatchett brothers we taught those guys how to climb and they went with it like they've done amazing things i've had amazing adventures with those three people just I could write a whole book about my exploits with those three guys and my time with Scott and John and the Stone Masters. And so I just feel so lucky that I was born in the era that I was born in and I got to experience the purest part of climbing, which was of those eras all about adventure. And then transition that into learning how to push my own standards and then turning that into a profession and scratching a living at it. And it's just, uh, I could never even imagine in 1980 when I drove my Subaru into the valley with Rick and taking that lesson, those lessons from Don Reed. And if he hadn't like taken time out of his day to show me some boulder problems. You know, it's all these things that happen because of other people that get you where you are today. And so many people don't ever recognize that or acknowledge that. And I completely always understood when somebody was doing something to help me. You know, had I never met Backer in the Stone Masters, had I never gone to J Tree in 1982. We would not even be on this computer having this conversation because I probably would have never done any of this stuff. And that's powerful and more valuable than any gold medal or World Cup prize or anything on this planet. 
And the only thing more valuable is my son and my wife and my family now. Other than that, like, it's golden. And I still get choked up thinking about it. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Kurt for connecting from somewhere in the mid-Atlantic, I believe. Would have been a pretty good one for video. Watching him tell stories is almost as fun as listening to them, reaching for holds, throwing his hands up. Anyway, pretty fun. But let's not talk about the video thing. I'm not, I'm not ready to crack that open. I don't know why people like to watch people talk anyway. All right. If you want to find out more about Kurt Smith, the internet will help. He was all over the old taco, which is still out there. You know, the archives are still out there. People talking about him, him telling stories on there. You can follow him at Instagram. It's mostly his new life as a rep and a dad. But there's some good historical stuff there as well. That's at General Smith. And that's it for 2023. So eat, drink, be merry, but only if she's okay with you assuming her identity. And don't forget to check your knots. When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks at crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Thank <laughs> you.